Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of words said out loud by a man. This week, how to be a man in the 21st century. Thank you. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in that announcement, then tonight's programme is for you. I shall be tackling the awkward and embarrassing subject of manhood. Joining me are two people, one of whom is an old buddy of the programme, Paul Bassett Davis. Hello. And another who joins us hot foot from the G8 Cake Summit in Battenberg, Sue Perkins. Hello. Now, Susan, I will from time to time be calling upon your acting skills tonight. Should you be required to play the part of a man, what research have you done? Well, Jeremy, man's parts aren't something I know a lot about, but <laughs> I have been wearing what I believe are called trousers to get a sense of just how empowering they are. I see, and how long have you been doing that? All my life. Blimey. So, as an important female role model, what kind of messages are you trying to send to today's young women? Mainly lewd texts. <laughs> yeah. uh, for listeners who are confused at this point, I should explain that Susan, as well as being a popular celebrity, is... Well, what's your preferred descriptor, Susan? Lady Buggeress is fine, Jeremy. Splendid. <laughs> now, Paul, turning to you, in addition to being an author and actor, you also have a distinguished academic career. That's right, Jeremy. I'm currently Emeritus Professor of Gender Studies at the University of the Third Eye. And I'm interested in Sue's observations about trousers because I've been researching the way men use clothing to send a particular signal. For example, some psychologists suggest that the tie is actually a phallic symbol, which explains why men who habitually wear red spotty bow ties tend not to be in a relationship. <laughs> Interesting. More of your expertise later. So, listener, let's talk about what it means to be a man. Now, I am very masculine, in the sense that I'm needy, petulant and emotionally inarticulate. <laughs> but I might not be your idea of manly. So you might tell me to be a man, to which I can only say, I am, that's what I'm doing now. It might not look like it to you, but I'm growing hair out of my ears as we speak. <laughs> Although technically, growing hair while you speak is multitasking, which is stereotypically female. <laughs> it is a cliché to say that men can't do two things at once, but it's based on scientific fact. It's left brain, right brain. That's why a man finds it difficult to hold a conversation while at the same time sitting with his partner. <laughs> Gay men can't be like that, surely. What are you thinking? Uh, I'm not thinking anything. Me neither. No. No. Hmm. Do you want to watch Meet Me in St Louis again? Yeah, great! <laughs> of course, when someone says, be a man, they don't just mean be a man, they mean do the things a man is supposed to be able to do. But being a man suggests a great many responsibilities that didn't exist at the time when we were evolving. We often hear that things are hardwired into our DNA, but wiring, along with plumbing, grouting, <laughs> gearboxes, maps, football boots and tightly sealed jars, all came into existence thousands of years after we'd knuckled down to walking upright, if that makes any sense. In fact, almost everything we're supposed to be naturally good at has no place in nature. Even an ancient skill like building a fire is probably something early women did. Now, Sue, as our resident culinary expert, how did domestic tasks divide up for our ancestors? Well, Jeremy, cave women probably had very few distractions from cooking. Were there no book clubs? No. 
because alcohol hadn't been invented. <laughs> and conversation was limited as men weren't considered so useless in those days because the range of things to fail at was quite limited, as you said. I mean, pretty much everyone could point at the sky in wonder, and all men came joint first in the hairy back contest. <laughs> no, women would be focused more on gathering nuts and fruit to make a kind of prehistoric Dundee cake. Mm. So how easy is it to get an even temperature on an open fire? Glad you asked me that. Well, <laughs> very adverse baking conditions. And as you say, the fire was women's responsibility. Despite men's passion for fire, only a handful of very lonely survivalists have the patience to rub sticks together. Yes, most of us prefer the instant gratification of self-lighting charcoal with added brush cleaner. So what, uh, what were men doing then? Just hunting with flint weapons? Yes, I mean... Being allowed to hold the sharp things, basically. Yes, I've never been convinced that large Neolithic beasts were brought down with flint, despite museums trying to convince us that a bit of broken pebble tied to a stick somehow has the penetration capability of a depleted uranium missile. <laughs> Maybe it's because meat was such a hard-won prize that men are so fixated with it today. Given the effort expended in procuring mammoth sirloin, our ancestors could be forgiven for being less excited by the mixed leaves. Especially because in those days they probably were just mixed leaves. <laughs> Is that why it's a matter of male pride to pick even the tiniest bit of salad out of a kebab or a burger? <laughs> or is it because so many men are not men, we're still boys? To be a man, you not only have to be male, you also have to be an adult. So let's talk about food and maturity. Don't want to. Paul. <laughs> now... Not liking vegetables begins in childhood. It gives you power and control. Parents are nervous about introducing children to foods that will in any way nourish them, so without meaning to, they send out subtle signals that veg is an unpleasant obligation by saying things like... Just one more spoonful of peas, and then you can eat your own body weight in the sugary crack we call pudding. <laughs> Grandparents cut to the chase. Convinced they've already earned their childcare spurs and have nothing to prove, they just groom their grandchildren to be craven, sucrose-dependent lackeys. And the whole circus of trying to win young children over involves food. So children quickly sense that whoever controls the food agenda controls the situation. So girls eat emotionally and boys shun vegetables. Let's listen to this dramatic reconstruction of a grandmother intervening in her daughter's attempts to feed her own baby son. Hello, how's my baby boy? Um, actually, Mum, Look I... what Granny's got. Granny's got sweeties. Because when you've got sweeties, you don't need anything else. Uh, not now, Mum, please. I'm trying to get Ollie to eat a slice of carrot. Please, Ollie, just one slice. Please don't make Mummy cry again. Oh, but you don't fancy that carrot, do you, Ollie? No, he's a boy. Boys don't like carrots. Bet you'd rather have a nice big bowl of Granny's homemade golden syrup, wouldn't you? <laughs> Granny's best, isn't she? Love Granny more than Mummy, there's a good boy. <laughs> Granny's not in therapy, is she? No, Granny didn't have an eating disorder when she was a teenager, did she? <laughs> Silly Mummy with her dyslexia. Anorexia. Anna Karenina. <laughs> Granny tried to make Mummy eat, didn't she, Ollie? Tied her to a chair and served out the same bit of liver every meal for a month until she ate it. Clever Granny! 
It is also an observable tendency that dads favour daughters and mums favour sons. Dads have reason to be less enthusiastic about boys because we've been one and know what they're like. The reason mums favour sons is that they need to develop a special bond so that they will feel able to provide an alibi for him when he commits a violent crime. <laughs> Oh, my boy's a good boy. He was in all night filing my corn, so he was. He never knows nothing about no gangland shooting. No, he don't. I expect it was that wife of his. She's no better than she ought to be, if you get my meaning. Fur that and no knickers, if I'm not very much mistaken. <laughs> oh, naughty, Inspector. Oh, looks like you could do with some at art. Big, strong man like you has needs. Not getting enough at home, I shouldn't wonder. Do you mind awfully if I stop doing this voice, because I sound like my grandmother, Jeremy? <laughs> Of course, I, I completely understand. Now, Paul, I've been talking about nurture. What has science got to say about nature? Well, Jeremy, let's look at the question from a genetic perspective. Now, many people are aware of the amazing statistic that human beings share an astonishing 98% of their DNA with Liberal Democrats. <laughs> But what they may not realise is quite how late in the process of gestation gender identity is established. For example, it's not until the second or third year of pregnancy that we can observe the male foetus in the womb putting up shelves and lifting a leg to break wind. Thank you, Paul. More from you later. It's interesting that Paul should mention the Lib Dems because I saw Health Minister Norman Lamb pop up on Newsnight talking about suicide among men who lose all their confidence because of things like unemployment. One thing he forgot to mention was that it would help if his government stopped treating them like scumbags. <laughs> because if our society didn't have such a narrow idea of what it means to be a man, it might be easier to be one. But if you read the right-wing press, you'd think there's a crisis of masculinity caused by feminism, that rampaging equality has left men feeling emasculated and not knowing what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to behave around women. For any men struggling with that issue, don't be an arse is a pretty good benchmark. <laughs> Think of people of your own sex and the opposite sex first and foremost as human beings and then see where you go from there. Now I'm not saying this is something I always get right. For example, I sometimes compliment women on their appearance, assuming it's a nice thing for them to hear because we all feel valued by such reassurance because we hate ourselves and don't sleep very well. But I don't know if what I intend as supportive words spoken in a spirit of comradeship are instead received as demeaning and objectifying. Most likely they assume I'm gay and appreciate personal grooming. People, people often assume that I am gay because I don't say the things a straight man is supposed to say. It's taken me a lifetime to realise the correct response to did you see the game last night is not no but I like your shoes. <laughs> you can praise a man's trainers but only in a hushed and reverential way. Not because they're a lovely colour or they go with his bag. One of the reasons that compliments to women can seem lecherous or disempowering, even if they're not meant to, is that straight men don't pay each other such compliments. So, if I tell a woman her hair looks nice, more than two days after it's been done, during which time it's compulsory to say it looks nice, because going to the hairdresser is some kind of achievement. And I don't know why I would sneer at that, because if I get a letter in the post, that's a day well spent. <laughs> she might hear the words, your hair looks nice, or what she might hear is... All you are to me is some hair. <laughs> I have no interest in the fact that you're retraining to be a therapist. <laughs> Having messed up your own life, you're determined to start on other people's. <laughs> 
else would you do that? And if you do offend somebody, you must at the very least question what you've done, even if no offence was intended. They might be hypersensitive, or it might be that what you consider a playful conversational gambit is actually indecent exposure on public transport. <laughs> and I'm really not convinced by men who say... Oh, well, these days one doesn't know where one is, what with all this uh, women's lib and PC... I had no idea I was being inappropriate. In my day, biting a woman's neck and sucking her blood was a gallant way of bestowing eternal life. <laughs> and I don't think any man genuinely believes it's not disrespectful to whistle at women. Any more than anyone believes clicking your fingers at a waiter is some kind of jazz way of expressing solidarity with workers in the food services industry. <laughs> It might be that some women take whistling as a compliment, but if they do, they're wrong, and I know better, and they should listen to me on the subject of their oppression. <laughs> now, clearly, I would not claim to be free of any taint of patriarchal behaviour, nor am I someone so existentially grounded that I never worry about not being a real man. For example, when I'm at traffic lights and they turn green and I don't move off fast enough and I get beeped, I do two things. Firstly, I raise a hand to say thank you and give the impression that I'm oblivious to the anger and hatred of the driver behind. And secondly, I pull away really fast to get as far away as possible. Now, there's quite a lot going on here. Partly, I just want to escape the scene of my humiliation, but I'm also trying to assert something. I'm saying... Look, I'm fast, OK? Normally my response time is zero. I'm on a hair trigger. In fact, in a split second, there is no time to distinguish between friend and foe, so never, ever creep up on me like that again. <laughs> I can't say much about it, but let's just say uh, special forces, all right? Why do I even let myself feel humiliated? Because they might be thinking I'm not a very good driver? I'm not. Why would I be? Most British people hold a driving licence. How many of us are going to be any good at it? It's not a competition. It's not about the winning. It's about taking part, having fun and keeping unfit. <laughs> the main thing is, 30 years ago we scraped through a test by knowing that a sign with a deer on it means deer. <laughs> If you're a man, and many of you probably are, and I'm in no way judging you for that, an affinity with cars is supposed to be one of the signs of masculinity. And that, stupidly, seems to be more important to us as we become middle-aged. When you're 13, depending on where you live, you might be able to carve out an identity that doesn't rely on manliness. Maybe you could be funny, rebellious, flamboyant, have a silly haircut. But as you get older, it gets harder to carry that off because you look as though someone has let you go out looking like that. <laughs> or more likely, that there is no one to stop you from going out there. <laughs> and weirdly, in the year 2013, with all that we know, a lot of our prestige as men, and as countries in fact, is still tied up with our perceived physical strength and therefore our implicit capacity to do violence. Highly intelligent and well-read men tell me they can handle themselves because of where they grew up. And they say, I'm not proud of it. But they are, of course they are. Because if all else fails, you can beat the merry flip out of someone. And that's undeniably cool. I'd love to think I could take on a bar full of squaddies and beat them all with one arm tied behind my back. 
why I'd have one arm tied behind my back and then see that as a good time to get into a fight, I don't know. I suppose I might be about to have the fight and I think, well, I better take off my reading glasses, which incidentally were the reason for the fight. And then I think, well, while I'm about it, I better pop my cardio off. And then uh, as I'm trying to pull my arm out, I get my watch caught in the sleeve and I'm trying to shake it out. But by that time, I'm committed to the fight and somehow proceed to win it, but look preposterous nonetheless. Admiring onlookers saying, Well, that guy is really odd, and yet strangely, ungainly. He seems to be channeling Bruce Lee and Jack Tatty at the same time. But why would I want to be able to beat people up? It wouldn't make me a good person. At 18, I would have been content to say something savagely cutting, like, That just means you've lost the argument. And start running. But now I don't have the self-belief to think it's okay to be physically weak, so I go to the gym. And going there, I've observed that for a lot of men, it's not about health, it's about vanity. Now, we all like to look nice for the person who has to see us in our pants most often, but increasingly that's the doctor. <laughs> and let's be clear about one thing. Mirrors in gyms are for preening purposes. They're not there to remind chaps of my age what it is we're doing there. This bicycle doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Oh, silly me, there I am. I'm doing PE on the apparatus. <laughs> and in fairness, some of the men look amazing because they exercise every hour that God sends and they're about 23. And I think, yes, well done. You do look amazing, partly because you exercise every hour that God sends, but mostly because you're about 23. You will look amazing for now. But a time will come when you'll hurt your knees. You won't know why. You won't have done anything differently. One day, you'll get a sharp pain in both knees and they'll give way. You'll get them back with physio, but they'll never be 100%. So you won't work out quite as much. You'll maybe go four days a week instead of five. So you'll put on a bit of weight, so there's more pressure on your knees. And they'll go again. You'll get them back, but not fully. And you'll maybe just go three days a week. So you put on more weight, and that means you get out of breath more quickly. So you'll cut down to an hour, and you put on more weight and that puts pressure on your back. And it's not too bad, but you have to be careful and you're slowing down and you're putting on more weight and eventually you're really quite fat and you just stand around naked in the changing room saying, I used to look like you to disbelieving and very uncomfortable young people. Not content with showing off to themselves, men spend as much time as possible naked in front of others. If they could, they would parade naked in front of women, because exhibitionism is about invading people's territory. That's why German people love to be naked. It's a displacement activity. <laughs> and it's not only buff young studs prancing nude in the locker room. Whatever time I arrive at the gym, there is always a much older gentleman taking far too long to apply talcum powder to his privates. He's always there and only in the changing room. I've never seen him in the shower, in the pool, on the machines. I've never seen him leave or enter the building, nor in any other part of Streatham. He is just there in the changing room, talking around the clock. Yes, I said clock. I've wanted, I've wanted to fetch a member of staff to tell him... Uh, hello there. Uh, we need to lock up soon and, well, you've only got limited surface area there, haven't you? And um, it's not that absorbent, so I think probably one coat probably would have done you. And, oh, well, you're up to your knees in it now. And uh, you're not going to get any more to balance on that thing unless it gets... Oh, it is getting. OK, right. Um, I'm just 
just going to leave you to that. And increasingly, going to the gym is about training in some sort of combat. And I draw the line at violence-based exercise. I don't want to learn how to box. I don't even want to do one of those Eastern martial arts that people assure you are really about spirituality, but by chance involve battering somebody with a long stick. <laughs> or at the very least, pulling their dressing gown out of shape. <laughs> I don't... I don't even want to do British military fitness. It's not a martial art. You just do sit-ups in a park while ex-squaddies shout at you, living out their American war film drill sergeant fantasy. I'm sure it works. Of course soldiers are fit. So fit they can kill a man just by shooting him. <laughs> What I resent is the way the army is installing itself as a feature of our national life. Military service is still seen as the most manly thing a man can do. The image of the soldier fits with the concept of the warrior male in evolutionary psychology. Some academic researchers think men are genetically programmed to be violent because our ancestors fought wars to abduct women, basing their theory on the assumption that primitive men had as much trouble pulling as academic researchers do. <laughs> A more likely reason for the warrior role is that men tend to be bigger and the world is our lavatory. But as weapons become lighter and more precise and the ability to throw overarm becomes irrelevant, more and more women are being recruited to the armed forces. Another reason why women did not take part in wars historically... We are not hysterical! Historically... <laughs> OK, take a breath. <laughs> Another reason is that they weren't allowed to because they were being kept down. As I said in our last programme, women used to disguise themselves as men in order to become soldiers. And in none of those cases was there any suggestion that the woman's fighting skills were lacking. More recently, the idea that women might be capable of soldiering has gathered momentum, since it was found that they can vote without fainting in the polling booth, having spent so long folding their ballot paper neatly that they go weak from hunger. <laughs> And as society changes, the army changes. It can't be the preserve of straight white men. It must be representative in its makeup. Um, Jeremy, women soldiers don't wear makeup. They do. They wear that kind of dark, uneven foundation. <laughs> That's camouflage. Camouflage for what? Recruitment posters. You've got to put makeup on when you're having a picture taken. Okay, well that makes sense. But my point is, the army must reflect society so as to seem normal, especially now that war is an everyday, ongoing situation. We mustn't think there's anything outlandish about the forces, because if we did, we might question what they get up to. We talk about the army as though it's a completely normal thing to do. We're told the boys have a job to do, but most of them haven't. That's why they're in the army. And we're told that we need them, that they're keeping our streets safe, but they're not. The most dangerous thing on our streets is not the Taliban, it's the car. If soldiers want to protect our streets, they should be here, shooting my tyres out as I pull away from the curb. <laughs> And killing foreigners can't stop us blowing one another up. The fact is, nobody wants to invade us anymore, and we should be happy about that. But the army's worried, because when the day comes that we finally clock that there's nothing for them to do, we might collectively ask... What in the name of the risen Christ are you dressed like that for? <laughs> now, I'm not being hateful towards soldiers. I want them to come home safely and I applaud the ones who break rank to speak out against wars. They should never have been put in that position and they should not have been recruited when they were hormonal adolescents who'd just had a dispiriting meeting with a careers advisor. <laughs>
Because the army might be embracing sex equality, but who is it who gets most excited by the thought of being a soldier? Not women, not even men. Boys. Have you ever met a 16-year-old boy who's capable of making a sensible decision about anything? <laughs> Look at their bedrooms. I don't think you should be allowed to join the army, get married, go to church or have sex with a priest until you're at least 30. <laughs> and when I say teenage boys are hormonal, I don't mean that war is to do with testosterone, just that teenagers are mental and have difficulty distinguishing reality from fiction. As war becomes computerised, you don't even need to be especially aggressive. You just need to be good at Xbox and lack empathy. <laughs> Military training seems to be a process of dehumanisation. Certainly if one is to believe those drill sergeant scenes in the movies. The sergeant undermines the virility of the young recruits, shouting needlessly aggressive questions to which each must reply, Sir, yes, sir! Except when asked if he's ever performed a romantic gesture on another chap when he's expected to reply, Sir, no, sir! And all the fresh-faced young men are putting up with this abuse, and I just can't help thinking how much more enjoyable the scene would be if one of the recruits were played by Charles Hawtrey. <laughs> it would just diffuse all the tension if he went, Oh, hello! <laughs> and for all the brutalising of young men to turn them into fighting machines, the US Army quite often gets his ass kicked. They might do better if their drill sergeants were less like the one in Full Metal Jacket and more like Sergeant Wilson in Dad's Army. Would you mind awfully showing me your war face? Thank you so much. <laughs> well, we're nearly at the end of the programme. Paul, any final thoughts on man's nature from a scientific perspective? Well, Jeremy, many people don't realise just how random the whole genetic process is and that all human life may just be a vehicle DNA uses to reproduce itself. Think of us as a thin layer of bacteria smeared around our planet, like the coating of blue-green algae on a tennis ball that you fish out of a pond in the park and throw into your neighbour's garden to give their dog dysentery so it poos inside their house rather than outside yours. <laughs> Paul, if you've got a problem with your neighbour's dog, why don't you just talk to them about it? Because he's a typically aggressive male, and if I confront him about his dog, he'll just say he wants his lawnmower back and his garden furniture, and he'll bring up the whole issue of using the fence for firewood and pushing frogs through his letterbox and everything. He's just a raging maelstrom of testosterone, and on several occasions I've had to calm him down with my cricket bat. Very masterful, Paul. You're obviously a real man. Uh, Jeremy, you don't actually need to be a man to wield a cricket bat. You've only got to think about the England women's cricket team. Uh, yes, and? Nothing. Just thinking about the England... <laughs> women's cricket team. <laughs> so, in summing up, to be a man, what's important is to be grown up and to be human. None of the important qualities a person can have are the preserve of one gender. And we are no less human just because there are things we can't do. I've got a friend who is rubbish at almost everything a man is supposed to be able to do. He can't play cricket or football or rugby. He can't do decorating or heavy lifting or drive or fix cars or fix anything. Or fight or run or swim or walk. He can't hold a pint glass or a teacup for that matter. But he can hold a thought and he can hold a conversation. And his wife and kids are proud of him. And I'm proud to know him. You might know of him. His name's Jim Sweeney and he's a man. He's a hell of a man. Good night.
Jeremy Hardy's Speaks to the Nation was wired by Jeremy Hardy and made good by Paul Bassett Davis and Sue Perkins, with additional building material by Paul Bassett Davis. The contractor was David Tyler, and the programme is a positive production for the BBC.